You guys go ahead and take a seat. I love Christmas time. Maybe the one thing I don't like about Christmas is literally everybody I know is sick uh, and has been for a long time. So um, praying for you. Just want you to know that. And I'm grateful you're here. Um, I know, again, a lot of you guys are battling the same stuff I am. But this time of year is just awesome. I love celebrating with you guys. I love worshiping with you. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, meet me there. Uh, and we're going to do it again today by looking at the names that God gave to us to talk about and to um, relate to Jesus with. Next week, on Christmas, we're going to have a 10 a.m. and a 5 p.m. gathering here, and I'm really excited about because we're going to talk about Jesus being our Prince of Peace. I mean, how much do we need peace right now? And what he does is he gives us ultimate peace. But today, today we're going to look at the name right before that. If you remember Isaiah 9, here's what it says. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I've told you this numerous times. Within those two phrases are some of the deepest theology in the entire Bible. You see both the humanity and the deity of Christ. If you remember this, this is the promise that God was giving to the nation of Israel. Hey, my answer to what's going on in your life is a son is going to be given to you that will come to be your redeemer. <clears throat> he says the government shall be upon his shoulders, and here it is, and his name shall be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we're going to talk about that next phrase, Everlasting Father. I've heard it said that you can actually look at all of us and, and understand that our identities are shaped by what the most important people in our lives think about us. Think about that statement in just, for just a second. Most of our identities are shaped by what the most important person in our life thinks about us. If that person, that most important person, spent your entire life cultivating in you and affirming you, well, you probably have a pretty positive view of yourself. Now, for some of you, if you, if you spend your entire life trying to make up for the wounds of your past by what that person did to you, will you probably find yourself always trying to be something you're not or be someone you're not. For a lot of us, for a lot of us, that's what shaped us. But what if I told you that the person who thinks most about you that should shape your identity comes with the two most powerful words right here, Everlasting Father. You know, there's nothing more secure than a father who affirms you. There's nothing more important than a dad who loves and accepts you. See, Christmas should be the greatest identity marker in your life. Christmas says that God accepts you, that he received you into his family. Christmas says that you are secure in him. And for, for some of you, when we start talking about dads, let me just tell you that the joy of great memories starting to pop into your head, right? You think about your dad as he coached your sports team growing up or as, as he was there in those monumental moments to give you advice that you needed. For others of you, when we start talking about dads, it's the opposite. You wonder, like, I, you're like, man, my experience was my dad was never there. He was always traveling. He was always somewhere else. My dad was not there at those pivotal moments. And when you bring up that name, it sparks something in me that's really challenging. And for some of you that I know, some of you are actually experiencing the loss of a father recently, which brings up an entirely different set of emotions for you. 
See, regardless, regardless of what category comes to your mind, when I say the word father, we know that something significant takes place and a father holds a very important role in this world. Now, moms, let me just tell you really quickly, today is primarily going to be about what it means to be a dad. Why? Because if we're honest, we all know that when dads suck, things go really bad. Matter of fact, let me share some statistics with you. When a dad is absent from the home, listen to this, 90% of runaways and homeless kids come from a father's home. 75% of all teenage murderers come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of incarcerated kids come from fatherless homes. 63% of all youth suicides come from fatherless homes. And 60% of all rapists grew up in a fatherless home. Now, when a dad is involved, listen to this, kids are two times more likely to go to college, 80% less likely to go to jail, and 75% less likely to experience teenage pregnancy. Regardless of how you slice it, dads, you play the most significant role in the entire world. And for most of us, for most of us, it's not a big deal to talk about Jesus as a wonderful counselor. Like, how many of us need good advice? For others of you, it's totally normal to talk about God as a mighty God. Like, you get that. That, that. that is really, really easy. But the moment you say, Father, things get personal. And because they get personal, your personal experience with what you grew up with tends to shape the way that you experience God. But the reality is, God is a father. Think about how God relates to himself in the Bible. When Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer, how does he start? Our Father. Matter of fact, 275 references to the Father in the New Testament. The Trinity has God the Father, and Jesus is described as the husband to the church, and you are described as the children of God. Here's what I know. Everybody needs a father, and Christmas is here to show you the depth and the length that God would go to become your father. So today, I want to take a closer look at those two words, everlasting father, and I want to show you how those two words should shape your view of Jesus in the best of ways. So the word everlasting, it, it literally means originator. Uh, it, it means that, that literally Jesus, the everlasting one, was the originator of all things, if you think about that for just a second, Jesus created all things. It says that in the beginning, he was. He was there in the beginning. He is the alpha and the omega. That means that he was there whenever everything was created. He will be there at the end. You have to understand this idea that a son being given means that he came outside of us and was given into this world. That means that God was from everlasting. And he is and always has been a part of this eternal thing called community. You see, he always existed in this communal being between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which means that everything he gives you is an overflow of what he has already experienced. When Jesus gives you his love and affection, it's not filling him up. It has already been filled. Listen, guys, everything that Jesus offers you comes from a wellspring of never-ending, never-changing love that Jesus has experienced from eternity's past. If you actually go back to the book of Genesis, you remember what it says whenever he created, let us create. What, what, what is that us? That us is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that has always existed. The book of Hebrews, listen to how it describes Jesus. It says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed (laughs) the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word (laughs) of his power. Notice that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint. That means that when you look at Jesus, what you get is you get God, the creator. And notice how he created. He created by his word. That tells you that Jesus, remember John 1, the word became flesh, but this word that you hold in your hand is the same exact word that created the universe and continues to uphold it by his power. I'm telling you, the idea that Jesus is everlasting and all-powerful is what uniquely qualifies him to speak into our lives. Think about how mind-blowing this is. The infant that came into the world 2,000 years ago is infinite. The suffering servant is the everlasting father. The word that became flesh and is encapsulated in your word upholds the universe with its power. Like, I don't know about you, but there is something absolutely amazing about the complexities of God and yet the simplicity. Here's the simplicity of Jesus. He's a father. He's not only a father. He's an everlasting father. You see, you got to get the big idea of what Isaiah is doing here. That word everlasting, it's actually not referring to Jesus as the originator. It's describing the word father. It's an adjective to tell you that he is a never-ending, everlasting father. It's a descriptive. Think about what that tells you about God. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He is timeless. He is steady. He is secure. He will never quit on you. He will never disappoint you. Write this down. Jesus is an everlasting father. See that descriptor? means he will never stop caring for you. No matter what your earthly experience was, that's not the nature of God. See, there's something about his nature that Isaiah wants you to know. He wants you to know that this Messiah that was born 2,000 years ago on Christmas will never stop caring for his people, ever. That's why I love the way, if you look at the end of the book, Revelation 21, listen to how it describes God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I've told you this before. When Jesus comes back, the dwelling place is coming down. He will dwell with them, meaning he will be with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This verse says a lot of things, but don't miss the fact that it shows you the care of a father. (laughs) You see, God himself, God himself will be with you forever. You see his compassion? Like, I don't know about you, But I hear far too many stories of disconnected men that never give affection to their kids, that never tell their kids that they love them, that have to be this stoic man. I I remember, um, you know, some of you don't know this if you're new here. I did not grow up in a great situation or a great home. And I remember when I first met my wife, 
I guess we were calculating this the other day, 17 years ago, and, and I met her dad, and he, and he hugged me, uh, and, and not, not just like hugged me, like one of those really, really awkward hugs, right? Like I'm sitting here like this, and it was so awkward. It's one of those that like if you're a homeschool kid, you'd probably get a spanking because you didn't leave enough room for the Holy Spirit kind of hug. Like he was up on me. I went home, and I told my girlfriend, now wife at the time, I said, tell him to never do that again. And he did it again, and he did it again, and he did it again, and 17 years later, he still does it. And it softened me over time, and it started to shape the way that I wanted to be a dad. And now, when he comes in for that hug, sometimes I'm just like wrapping my leg around him, and I... Listen, I hug my kids, and I kiss my kids, and I love my kids, and I'm telling you every single day there's not a moment that goes by in their life that I don't tell them that they are treasured. Why? Why? Because that's the type of dad you should be. The type of dad that says you should be a little bit of a jerk, that's just dumb. Y'all, your kids are learning from you and being shaped by you. When I look in the Bible, here's what I see. I see that Jesus is always compassionate. He's always the first one to initiate intimacy. If you remember the story of Peter walking on water, Peter begins to sink into into the ocean. And what does Jesus do? He reaches down and compassionately grabs his hand and brings him back up. When his friend dies, he weeps. Whenever he is suffering at the cross, what does he say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. See, what you have here is you have a father who is compassionate and kind and loving. What if we decided that we were going to do the same exact thing to our kids? Because here's what I know. In my life, my warped view of my earthly father created in me a warped view of my heavenly father and a warped view of what intimacy should look like. And because of that, it was modeled in such a bad way that I don't want that to be the case for my kids or your kids. Dads, we can do better than that. Show your kids affection. By the way, I show my kids affection to my wife too. You wouldn't believe how many people I know that tell me that they never saw their parents hold hands or kiss one another. Y'all, I tell my kids all the time that I am madly in love with their wife, or with their mom, and I love her dearly. Men, let me just tell you this. What you model for your kids is going to shape who they are. And I, I just, somebody's gonna shape their life. So who do you want it to be? You want it to be you or you want it to be the internet? Because I promise you, they're learning what it looks like to be a man from somebody. And the challenge that I want to give you is that God has called you to emulate him. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is an everlasting father, and that means he is a father forever. Forever and ever and ever. See, you don't need to fear him, and he will not abandon you. So let me give you this. Let me give you four practical characteristics of a godly father. Here's number one. A father is compassionate and forgiving. How many, uh, show of hands, participation, how many of you ever heard your dad tell you he was sorry? That's actually better than I thought. For most people, it's pretty dysfunctional. Dads don't ever really confess whenever they've messed up. I don't know about you, but what kind of image, what kind of image comes to your mind when you think about God? Let me give you a couple of them. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Second Corinthians 1, Paul says, God is a father 
of all mercies and comfort. In the book of Exodus, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, you remember what he told him? Look at this, Exodus 33. And I, God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. How about Psalm 103.6? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Listen, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Listen, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You know, it's said that maybe the most important word in the Hebrew language is the word hased. Hased, it's a complicated word in English to translate because it's actually a combination of three different ideas. It's a combination of the idea of love, generosity, and enduring commitment. That word, hased, we translate to steadfast love. This is how the Bible describes God. Now, he is steadfast, he is hased. Here's the way the descriptor works. In the, in the book of Hosea, God tells a man named Hosea to go find a wife named Gomer. And he tells him, hey, I need you to go find this woman. I need you to pursue her, and I need you to marry her. The only problem is, is Gomer was a prostitute. So Hosea is naturally like, what are you talking about? He says, go get her. So Hosea pursues her. He loves her. <coughs> he marries her. She leaves him, she cheats on him, and he pursues her again. And God says, relentlessly love and pursue her. And as he does, he looks at Hosea and he says, by the way, here's what I need you to know. The way you pursued her is the way I will pursue you. Even if you leave me or forsake me, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. His steadfast love. The way Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is, even if you are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a steadfast, never-ending love. But I want you to see he doesn't just love you. He knows you intimately. Look back at, look back at Psalm 103. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know what he's saying here? He's saying God knows you're frail, that this life is hard. He knows you thoroughly. He knows you intimately. And yet he still chooses you. He knows everything about you because he's your father. And because he's your father, he doesn't care that you're frail or that you're struggling. He accepts you. Did you know that? Did you know that God doesn't accept the fake version of you? He accepts the real thing. He knows (coughs) your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows them all. The deal is, is you can come to him in all of your ugliness and he still chooses you. Isn't that freeing? Isn't there something freeing about the security of a father who doesn't choose to love you based off what you do, but based off of who he is? You don't have to hide from him. He already knows you. You see, love and security meet at the steadfast love of God who chooses the real you. But that love, that love wasn't free. It was given. 
You got to understand this. Notice that the psalmist says that he removes your sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you know how far the east is from the west? Infinitely far, which means that he infinitely chooses to forgive you. The only way that he can infinitely remove your sins is for God to infinitely forgive you. And the only way that he can infinitely forgive you was by nailing his son to a cross to absorb your sins. Y'all, at the cross, you see the steadfast love of God. You see the forgiveness of God collide together in a father. And I'm telling you, the love of your heavenly father is the only thing that can completely fill up that void in your identity. It's hard to explain, but let me just tell you, without the security of knowing and embracing the love of God, you will look to other things to fill that void in your life. But the security and the steadfast, everlasting love of your father is actually what gives you the steadiness in this life. Dad's that's God has called you to emulate God's steadfast love to your family. And for some of you, it's okay to model that for your kids and to ask for forgiveness and to struggle alongside of them and to walk with them and to be kind to them and to love them like God loved you. Somewhere along the way, there needs to be compassion and forgiveness, even if it's not deserved, because that's exactly what God has done for us. Here's number two, a father's presence is security. Notice that adjective, everlasting. It describes God, the father, by telling you that he's not going anywhere. It's his very presence that is your security. I mean, think about your kids. Isn't that true for them too? Isn't it true that your presence in their life is actually what creates their security? It's exactly what Jesus, by the way, told the disciples when he was going to heaven. If you remember Matthew 28, the very last words that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. And he says a bunch of other stuff. And at the end, he says, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. My presence is your security. Matter of fact, whenever I leave you, I'm going to send my spirit to come and dwell inside of you so that you have me with you forever. <coughs> Think about the way that Paul described it, Romans 8. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. See, his presence is your security. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Story has it that during World War II, Winston Churchill kind of got to the end of himself and he, he honestly didn't believe that they were going to win the war. He was, he was suffering through some things, and um, he's becoming depressed about how the war was shaping up. The Nazis were on the, on the front. Um, they were progressing, and things were getting pretty dark. Until December 7th, 1941, whenever Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. It says, Churchill wrote in his own diary that President Roosevelt called him and says, now we're all in the same boat together. And Churchill wrote, that he went to bed that night and, went and had the sleep of victory. He said, listen, nothing physically changed. The Nazis were still on the offensive and we were still losing the battle. And yet, based on the Americans' presence in the war, it was only a matter of time before the victory would be won. That's what God's presence does in your life. It may not change your circumstances, in the temporary finite moment, and yet it's only a matter of time before the victory is won. It's like my, 
my six-year-old son, for some odd reason, he sometimes gets scared about going upstairs in our house by himself. He thinks for some reason we live in the safest place on earth, but he thinks that like something's going to happen. And every single time that he gets scared about going up there by himself, I grab him by the hand and I walk up there with him. And my very presence in his life, it's like it shatters all of his fear. Can you imagine walking with God like that? Listen, listen to how the Bible describes God when he says, do not fear. Isaiah 41, fear not. Fear not, why? For I am with you. You see it? Hey, don't be afraid. I'm not going to leave you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen to it again. Verse 13, for I, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who am with you. Fear not. I am the one who helps you. When you're walking through this world and you don't understand how to take the next step, what does he do? Is he grabs your hand. Have you ever thought about that? God is not so distant that he does not hear from you. He's not so removed that he cannot be with you. I love the way that one theologian said it. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million things. Yet distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. Even when you don't feel God's presence, he is there. Like James says, if you will draw near to him, he will draw near to you. He is always there. Dads, I'm telling you, there's nothing more important in your kids' lives than your presence and your nearness. Let me just, again, I want to give you four quick things if you're a dad, four quick things that all research will tell you will actually shape the outcome of your kids' life in the most positive ways if you'll do it. They might surprise you. Here's number one. If you have boys, you should wrestle with them. Like, you should have physical interactions with your sons. I was reading this in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, where he says that research shows that if men, if dads actually had physical rough play with their kids, they shape their emotional health in the best of ways. Now, here's the conversation I have with Elliot, my six-year-old, all the time. I say, boys are protectors, which means that you're only allowed to fight with me and nobody else unless you're protecting them. And we go at it every day. That little joker, I come in the house, he jumps on my back and we wrestle around and we have the best of relationships. You should, you should spend time doing that with your kids. Here, here's the next one. Dad's number two, you should tell your stories. Like, do you know how many kids don't know their family's past? Do you know how, how many people I know? They're like, I know nothing about my dad. I don't know where he grew up. I don't know what his life was like. Listen, it is annoying whenever dads don't stop talking about the glory days. Nobody cares that you were a high school MVP, but your kids do, and they should know. And you should sit them down, and you should talk about the fact that you used to be able to throw a football a quarter mile, okay? That they didn't, the mullets didn't originate with them, that you had a Walkman and you ruled the school. And you should let them all know that. They need to know your history. They need to know where you grew up. They need to know what it was like to be a kid in Kansas, what it was like to grow up in the suburbs of California. Sit them on your lap and tell them what it's like to be you. Because your past is shaping their family too. Number three, tell them about your faith. You wouldn't believe how many people I know tell me that their faith in their home was never talked about ever. Listen, if you're going to have a personal relationship with Jesus, it needs to be personal. Which means that it needs to personally impact your life. 
You should be talking to your kids about your faith. You should connect the dots for them, how you came to faith and how Jesus impacts your life. You should talk about these things often. You should pray with them. When you're struggling, you should tell them. You should always be talking about your faith. And here's number four. Again, this one shouldn't surprise you. You need to learn to be affectionate. Dads, don't be too macho that you don't hug and kiss your kids. And don't be too prideful that you don't tell your kids how you're feeling. There's nothing more powerful than whenever you can tell your kids that you're scared or you're walking through something or you don't know what to do in this moment or you're sorry because your emotions and how and, and inviting them into those emotions is actually going to shape them into the people they are. Listen, dads, your presence is molding your kids into healthy human beings. And the same thing is true for you. The presence of your heavenly father and leaning into that is shaping you into becoming a healthy human being. That's why relationships matter. Do you realize that whenever Jesus came into this world, he didn't just die to forgive you. He died to live with you, in you, and build a relationship with you. All right, number three. Number three, a father is sacrificial. A father is sacrificial. You all know the verse if you've been around Christianity. I mean, it's held up at every football game. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Let that sink in. He gave his one and only son. Your father loved you so much that he gave his one and only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God gave. There is nothing more significant than sacrifice. Nothing. There's no love deeper than sacrificial love. What you have to understand is that the child that was born in that manger 2,000 years ago grew up to become a man to take your sins and your sorrows and nail them to the cross. Isaiah 53, surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, and that he is referring to Jesus himself, was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Have you ever sat with that? God gave everything. See, there's something to sacrificial love that just does something to us, doesn't it? Like, it, 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 it doesn't make you want to take advantage. It makes you want to be indebted into love. That's why every single classic Disney movie is ripping off the Bible. If you didn't know that, every single, and I say classic on purpose because the new ones are just way out there, but every single classic Christian, Christian, uh, Disney, Disney movie is about sacrificial love. Every princess wanted a prince. Every man loves Braveheart and Gladiator. Why? Because there is love in there. I mean, how many of you shed a tear whenever Russell Crowe got, got there and took off his mask and he said, my name is Maximus Decimus Marilius, commander of the armies of the north, general of Felix, his legion, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Every man, there you go. I might cry right now. Y'all, Braveheart, right? Every freedom, we, we love it. We live for this stuff. 
There's nothing like the sacrifices that happen, and it connects the dots for all of us that deep down inside, what we all need is the highest form of love, and that's sacrificial love. And that's why you should honor people that give up their lives and sacrifice for you. Y'all, you should respect police officers who sacrifice their lives for you to keep you safe. You should respect the military that goes out there, and you should admire them that fight for your freedom. Or how about the school teachers who buy their own supplies, work for pennies, and work overtime so that you your kids can learn and have education. Y'all, whenever I think about sacrifice, the people, honestly, that come to my mind first are moms. I don't know if you know this, but that's the hardest job in the world. A mom, a mom struggles all the time. Should they go to work? And if they go to work, you know what they do? They feel like crap because they feel like they should be at home with their kids. And whenever they're at home with their kids, you know what they feel? They feel like they're wasting something in them because they should be going to work. It's always a wrestling with sacrifice in their lives. Y'all, I don't know anybody like a mom. A mom rents out her body for nine months to a parasite that sucks the life out of her. Then she gives birth to that little baby and that little baby becomes a parasite that sucks the life out of her. And then never, she never goes to sleep. She spends the rest of her life sacrificially dying to herself to raise up other people. The other, the other day, my, my son, um, Elliot, he, he comes up to me and he says, Daddy, I got a question. Why, why is it that the daddy lions never hunt? I said, boy, that ain't just the lions. Let me just tell you, it's a problem. 80% of missionaries in the world are women. Over 65% of the American church is female. And listen, moms, you're You're amazing. And, and I just want to tell you that. Men, we, we got to start hunting. I think the world is waiting for men to act like Jesus, to start stepping up to the plate and leading in sacrificial love and going first in these moments. I think it's a problem whenever we are not leading. When men lead through sacrifice, everything changes. The world is waiting. I'm telling you, the world is waiting on dudes to step up to the plate and act like men again. And men act like Jesus. See, your, your everlasting father, he didn't come domineering his power. He came by laying down his life to serve you. You ever notice this, Ephesians 5? I do this every time that I marry somebody. Uh, Ephesians 5 say, husbands, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. When was the last time that you walked into your house wondering how you're going to die to yourself that day so that you can have the mentality that you're going to serve and love your wife and your kids to make them beautiful like Christ made the church beautiful? I'm telling you, the way to win the world is not through money, sex, and power. The way to win the world is through sacrificial love. It's what Jesus did, and it's what he's calling you to do too, which leads to number four. A father leads. That means they go first. They don't wait until the other person apologizes before they ask for forgiveness. A father makes the first move. Isn't that what Jesus did? Maybe my favorite parable in the Bible is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I love this. Um, Tim Keller says that it actually probably should be renamed the parable of the prodigal father because prodigal literally means a reckless love. And what he says is actually, when you read the story correctly, it's the father who is reckless in his abandon to go after his son because he loves him so much. So in the, in the parable, you, know, you guys, if you've been around Christianity, here's what happens is the son comes to the dad and he says, dad, give me your inheritance while you're still alive, which is basically him saying, you are dead to me. I want what is rightfully mine and I wanna leave you and I wanna sever the relationship. So what does the dad do? In his compassion and grace, he gives it to his son. 
and his son takes it, he goes away, and he squanders it. And, and then he gets to the end of himself, and he says, man, man, I should go back home. Listen to what it says. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I will perish with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Listen, listen. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and he kissed him. While he was a long way off, he runs to him. I don't know if you don't know this or not, but grown men don't run. Next time you see a grown man, a grown man in his clothes running, you should probably run too. He's probably being chased by something. And back in those days, it was not only unheard of for a grown man to run, it was actually disrespectful. It's a sign of respect for him to walk. And yet, and yet he didn't care because it was his son. And because it was his son, he runs and he embraces him. The, the idea here, the language is while he was still a long way off, the father had been waiting patiently and pursuing the son. While the whole entire world would tell you not to, to wait until the son grovels at your feet to embrace him, that's not what he does. Why? Because that's not the character of an everlasting father. Romans 5, 8, while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? That means that God didn't wait for you to clean up your mess to come back home and grovel at his feet before he died in your place. Christmas is about God leading. It's about him going first. It's about him stepping off of his throne and coming to earth. It's about him pursuing, recklessly pursuing you with his love and abandon because he is an everlasting father. He doesn't treat you like a hired hand. He treats you like a son or a daughter of the king and his sacrificial leadership is what's calling you back home. Here's what I know. Assurance and acceptance go hand in hand. Your assurance in this life is based off the acceptance of what Jesus has done. Your everlasting father died in your place. And that means that no matter what your earthly father did to you or what you experienced in him, you have a heavenly father who will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. See, here's what I've come to learn. If you don't have security and grounding in what God thinks about you, you will look for it in everything else. G.K. Chesterton, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. What Christmas gives you is a declaration about what God thinks about you. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. And he is an everlasting father. You see, every single person in this room, regardless of what you think, is going to have to answer these three questions. Who am I? It's an identity question. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? Listen to me. Who are you? You're a child of God. Where'd you come from? You came from your heavenly Father. And where are you going? Revelation 21, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying anymore for the former things have passed away. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. For God so loved the world 
that he gave. He gave his only son so that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You starting to see it? You starting to see what Christmas actually does for you? The infinite became an infant to live your perfect life, die your death on a cross, raise from the dead in order to unite you back to himself so that he can be your everlasting father. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. You really are a good father. And I thank you for your everlasting love, your dominion over our lives, you going first, your sacrifice. Lord, we honor you because of who you are and what you've done. And we pray that whatever wounds may be in this room from the past that we've experienced, that our identities would be forged and shaped by you. Jesus, the way you feel about us is not just displayed through words, but it was given through deeds and action. So Lord, this Advent season, as we prepare for next week to to worship you and to celebrate the birth of our Christ, I pray that we would remember for unto us, a child was born, a son was given, that you are our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. So in the name of Jesus, we, we honor you and worship you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.